When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is your host, Morteza Hajizadeh from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to be speaking to Professor Mohsen Al Musavi. Dr. Mohsen Al Musavi is a professor of classic and modern Arabic literature, comparative and cultural studies at Columbia University. He's a renowned scholar and literary critic. His teaching and research interests span several periods and genres. Professor Al-Musavi is the author of 39 books, including six novels and over 60 scholarly, scholarly articles. And today he's here to talk with us about a great book he published with Cambridge University in 2021 called The Arabian Nights in Contemporary World Cultures, Global Commodification, Translation, and the Culture Industry. Uh, Mohsen, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you, thank you, Murtaza, thank you. Uh, before we start talking about the book, could you please briefly introduce yourself to our listeners, uh, tell them about yourself, your field of expertise, and how you ended up to become a professor of literature at Columbia University? Yeah, this is a long story, as you know, because I started my life early on as a, a, a kind of somebody who is more of a dilettante in so far as literature goes. And uh, I started my university in Baghdad early on, trying to learn more from my brother, whom I used to read his margins, usually on books and very many books, which he used to read. And uh, and then I got a, a different style, certainly in Arabic and English, And later on, though, I decided that it is time to work in between languages and cultures. And so when I traveled to Canada to do my doctoral studies there, I convinced uh, a certain supervisor, whom I thought is a very good critic and a sharp one and very intimidating, actually, somebody who students try to avoid at that time, but I went to the challenge myself and took the challenge and tried to go into that. He told me that his knowledge of Arabic is very little, and so I should I should do it myself, but he will offer the critical theory kind of thinking, which he did. Very good interrogator, usually. He doesn't uh, believe in platitudes and so on. That helped me, and he was a very rigorous scholar, and for that matter, nothing, not even a paragraph, will go to him without being interrogated and argued and so on. That is very good training, I thought, for me, and uh, it uh, it was very helpful. And when I came across the topic of the Arabian Nights at that time, we are talking, remember, we are talking about mid-70s. That is, I started working on the Arabian Nights and published an article in 1976. And the article appeared in Muslim World in Connecticut, that is Hartford Seminary Foundation, New Haven, and uh, that was the article. It was 18th century English criticism of the Arabian Nights. And it was followed later by another article about the growth of scholarly interest in the Arabian Nights in the same journal. Because I have been invited to, to the seminary a number of times to give talks and so on. And, and I thought that could be a very good topic for... Uh, dissertation. So my dissertation at that time was about the critical 19th century critical responses to the Arabian Nights, certainly very inclusive also of the 18th century. But remember that we are talking about a period when there was no internet and certainly no such luxury as we have it nowadays in research. So I stopped at the British Museum, that is National Library, for very many months working there. 
and on journals, um, old editions, uh, the Chamberlain archives of theater and so on and so on. Then I stayed at the Widener Library and uh, Harvard and Yale, both of them actually, I stayed at their libraries for longer periods of time and certainly at Hartford Seminary Foundation where the Case Memorial Library is located until now. And that was the collection of the Orientalists, the famous American Orientalist, D.P. McDonald. And McDonald collected almost everything that was available in his own time and before about the Arabian Nights. That was his marvelous collection. I don't think he was beaten by any other in collecting so much material about the Arabian Nights. And I was aware also of his correspondence with another friend of his at Harvard University at that time. And, and, they, uh, and he mentioned that he was embarking on a translation, a, a retranslation from Arabic manuscripts. And he thought that that was feasible and possible and so that he could revise what Galam and one certainly offered and later on certainly Edward William Lane, which is not exactly a translation, you know. Anyway, but I discussed that. So the book came out in 1981, Three Continents Press. It is titled Shahrazad in England, 19th Century English Criticism of the Arabian Nights. I covered almost every article that appeared in periodicals at that time, uh, large and small, and tried to formulate an idea about what were the critical trends in there. And in, in, in the final analysis, I came to the understanding that this is so popular, so read by everybody, from Thomas Carlyle to Walter Badgett, the editor of The Economist, we call it now The Economist, it used to be the National Review, and, and, and so on. So everybody almost, philosophers, poets, writers, painters, everybody was reading and responding. And that was, in the edit, uh, uh, this is when I looked at it, to provide us with an index of a taste at that time, a cultural. That is, so if you want to read the culture, here it is. It is, in a nutshell, if you read the responses of the Arabian Nights. And so it is no longer a mere book or a translation or whatever. We are talking about something else. That is, the Arabian Nights collected around it so many responses, whether we are talking in England and America. At that time, I didn't check what was available in Australia because whatever that comes uh, in other places could have been reaching England in one way or another. And, and so I read all these and came to that conclusion that actually to read culture, you can note, speak about a theory of fiction, you cannot speak even about a theory unless you go to a certain book that has been gathering so much information and so many responses from everybody. And from there, you can classify the information, read it, and try to find out exactly what are the major indications and the trends that can direct you in to focus on something in a nutshell that is uh, something that leads you to understand that culture. Otherwise, this is why you find the failure of uh, British critics for a long time because they couldn't understand. They have been looking down on everything which they think of as Oriental. And for that matter, under the impact of the old philological school, certainly, and including Ernest Renan's and so on. And, and, and as, as such, they didn't go there. They didn't. They tried to find something, Greek origin, something like that. And, you know, some, all these kind of fables, which lead nowhere, actually. And that was a great drawback. And so far, as literary criticism is concerned, and even right now, when we are talking about theory in general, we are missing the point. 
it is not enough certainly to criticize all the school of Orientalism and so on. It is larger than that. And we are talking about a tradition which was misled by itself, self-delusions, in order to bring something called a certain original stock, a Western-oriented something in Greco-Latin uh, root which is just, as as we know, and very many scholars wrote about that. But again, I mean, the failure of these scholars who tried to dispute that kind of uh, original myth, also they failed because they didn't go to the text that will lead them to understand, and, and so on. And, and, and this is why I thought at that time, certainly nobody was caring for that at that time. We are talking about 1981. And actually, my publisher uh, at that time, professor of Israel Pound in, uh, in Washington, and uh, Donald Herdix, but Donald Though uh, uh, very much in Ezra Pound, uh, Ezra Pound led him to the so-called Orient in one way and to the Cantos and all that kind and made him engage with something other than the Western. I mean, we know how Ezra Pound has been revolting against very many things and brought very many things. And certainly he was a major influence on T.S. Eliot. This we know. I mean, T.S. Eliot recognized that in uh, the motto for 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 uh, the wasteland, for instance, and so on. So you can tell that, that Ezra Pound was there and he influenced the, the Donald Herdick. And Donald Herdick established the three-continent press. And that was the beauty of it. So when Isa Bulata, the late Isa Bulata, a professor at Montreal uh, McGill University for a long time, certainly, when I told him that I got my book ready, and uh, and if he has any suggestion, he said he suggests three continents. It is a new press, and this guy is very interested in these books. And so on. So I gave it to Donald Herdick. Donald certainly is, uh, you know, he doesn't have the money. It is a new price. So I got the assistant of Baghdad University to help in supporting him in a subvention. And they did, actually. So they bought 1,000 copy from him. That helped him. So he was okay. He was okay and he was happy. However, he was not a good distributor. He has no knowledge of distribution. And this is, it takes me to the point, for five to six to seven years, the book was almost dead. I mean, yes, it was reviewed by by a number of journals and so on, but the journals are more interested either in comparative or in Eastern languages and so on. But not, we. Uh, we uh, I mean, the other side, that is, uh, journals that deal with the literary history, with literary theory, with this. No, it didn't go there, you see, because again, the circulation and the distribution was limited in one direction, which he was interested in. Anyway, so it was only, I think, sometimes by the end of the 80s that some people became aware of that book. And, and this, uh, when I was teaching in Yemen in my early career, when I was exiled, certainly from Iraq at that time, so I tried, first of all, to settle somewhere, right? So I tried Jordan, and I taught for a few months, and later on, the poet, who was the president of Sana'a University in Yemen, Abdul Aziz, Al-Maqalih invited me to come and join, which I did. So I joined Yemen, San'a University, for a year and a half, and he was a very generous person. He accommodated me as, as in the best manner he could, uh, knowing the circumstances around that time. And later on, I met in Amman a number of Tunisian intellectuals, and they were surprised what I am doing in Yemen, they said. I mean, come to Tunisia, and they sent me an invitation immediately to join Tunis University, and I stayed actually at the university for eight years. That was the longest time in my life at that time to stay at one university because I like to travel a lot. 
and and my wife has stayed for nine years also teaching uh, at the same university, uh, Tunis University One, they call it, and uh, quite good. And I established a comparative lit uh, department at that time because they didn't believe before me in comparative literature at all, and and so on. So I established that actually, and so. And later on, I, I, I got um, a letter from American University in Sharjah, that is UAE, to come and join, which I did in my full title as a full professor. You know, I could continue with that. And uh, while I was there, though, I received a letter from George Saliba, which is just an invitation to apply. I mean, it doesn't promise anything, invitation to apply. And later on, I understood that 53 people were applying, all of them in the rank of of full professor. And so I tried to the American embassy at that time, you know, to get the consulate, to get a visa, you know, to go. And the, uh, the lady who was in charge told me the problem is the American... Uh, the United States was not having any diplomatic relations with Iraq at this present time. And for that matter, Iraqis cannot go. I told her, well, but there is an invitation and I have an interview. She said, that is what we have. We write and we wait for an answer. Now, when I was called by the international office at Columbia University, I told them, okay, I am shortlisted. And I am waiting for a visa. Tell me exactly what to do. Because that is the consulate and that is the answer. And I don't blame them as long as they act in, in, according to certain regulations, which they have. And it is not personal. I told her, somebody told me it is good to call the congressman who represents the university. She said that this is a great idea. And she did, and the next day the visa was there. And 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 the lady was annoyed, certainly, who rejected me. I mean, not rejection, but telling me we, we wait for an answer. And and she was surprised how we got it in one day, you know, something that fast, that fast. So she she obviously very kind of the conservative mind who is afraid of being you know kicked out of her office and that kind you know and um, and uh, suddenly there is the visa and everything is there nobody stopped me you know and so i was interviewed gave a talk whatever and that was it and i settled there so that was the story also of Columbia University at that time. But let me go to first, because I mentioned that kind of, uh, that kind of uh, itinerary, because you want to know exactly what, 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 was, what was there. I mean, when I was in Yemen, though, I received a letter from a great professor who was also a graduate of Columbia University and who who worked with Edward Said and Todorov. Todorov was a visiting professor at that time. And, And she told me she received the following letter from a well-known, actually, professor at London University who wrote about in, uh, the Arabian Nights in English literature, an edited volume, Peter Caracciolo. And Peter wrote to me, he, he was asking her, there was a kind of guy who is a very sharp critic, and I came across his book only now, when I did, when the book, edited book was published. And he was alerted to that by two, by a, a lady called Nancy something, and in Victorian studies or who responded to, to his book, and by Muhammad Shaheen also, who responded to an review to his book. And both of them mentioned that you are missing the whole point. You didn't read Mohsen al-Musawi's book. And, and so he wrote, 
to me and apology. And we became very close friends because every now and then he will refer to the book and every article and everything, whatever, any conference, he will mention that certainly. And you can feel that this is a decent scholar, a great scholar, because very many stole from the book without mentioning me at all. But that's okay. It, it happens, as you know. So... Uh, so that was the story of a book. And and for some time, I thought, should I really work on something more? And I felt at a certain point that that is enough for the time being. Let me go to other interests of mine, the post-colonial Arabic novel, uh, poetry and its readings and poetics, theoretical issues, Orientalism, all this, this I published, certainly very many. And... Later on, though, when I began reading what is being written, since 1990, I felt that there is something missing. The missing thing is, first of all, we are reading a document which was treated as a document by all traditional, I mean, philologists, and, but at the same time, and they were taking it as a, a social kind of document, an archive of a sort, the Arabian Nights, that was read by uh, that kind of school, certainly, Walter Badgett, in a beautiful article, I mean, but misguided article, certainly, because he was a strong believer in Greek, Latin, original, whatever. And But uh, in his article, the people of the Arabian Nights, 19, I think, now, uh, no, 1856, I think that was. And that kind of article, mid-century, mid-19th century, he tried to see what is the social and, and the racial even context, let us say, of the Arabian Nights. And I felt since that time that there is something missing in our reading. This is why I published with Columbia University, that is, the uh, Islamic context of the Thousand and One Nights, you know, and that was important. Certainly it was misread by one European colleague who couldn't understand what is the meaning of manuscripts and the fluctuation, and that when we are talking about a specific manuscript, does it mean it is a duplication of another manuscript? And there are variations according to the taste of the period in which the editor or the translator or the collector will manage or detractor will manage that kind of version or manuscript or public or translation. Anyway, but that is not an issue. I left that. I didn't respond to that guy. But what I felt later is that there is something also missing. And what is missing is that we are not reading the Arabian Nights in context again. That is to say, what is happening actually in the 20th century and in the 21st even. We are missing how Borges tried to engage with the Arabian Nights. Why John Barth had a different take when he thought that postmodernism could very well work with uh, 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 with the Arabian Nights, and he thought of the pasties, certainly, and so on. Najib Mahfouz, on the other side, in Egypt, was doing almost the same thing, uh, trying to collapse a number of tales to produce something which is an, uh, an indirect criticism of Egypt at that time without saying it. So he was kind of using Sufism and all these things, but you can tell that it is another narrative of social criticism, which is very important, uh, certainly, as a, as, as a reading. Now, if we look a little bit carefully at a number of novelists who approach the Arabian Nights, also from postmodernists, most of them, most of them, a postmodernist approach. As you know, that was the vogue uh, at that time, especially the second half of the uh, 20th century. And, 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 and they didn't go into the commercial, uh, commercial aspect. That is how the Arabian Nights was turned right now in, as, a, as a commodity, how it go 
into that kind of uh, translational activity and got kind of trapped in that as much as it is trapping others. And that is the value of the Arabian Nights. If you are not careful, it, it is very much you are trapped, like how Shahrazad trapped the king, and so on. So we need to do that. And at the same time, I notice that most of the, or all, the readings, with the exception of little something by one, that they miss the first half of the frame tale. That is the queens, you know, and the, the two queens. The two queens story is very important because they were kept silent. We don't know. We know the anger of the two kings, yes, but we don't know why these two queens betrayed the uh, Shahrayar and his brother. There must be a reason. So the reason is very important for us because it, it could indicate something else. And at the same time, it was the first indication of a revolt against hierarchy of one sort or another, or patriarchy, you can say. And so I went into that, and I thought this is very important in order to lead us into more of the complexities of the Arabian Nights. The other side is, how do painters engage with the Arabian Nights? And why painting itself? So you, if you would like to read painting and exactly what were the transformations within the theories of art, you go there and you find that how Chagall addressed something is different from from uh, early 19th century, for instance, painters, and very uncertainly, Kelly, who was a different take altogether and so far as approaching Sindabad's tales and his colorings um, are very important, certainly, especially after his very many visits to Tunisia and so on. So he go to the turquoise color and try to work with that color, certainly, in his sea paintings. This is one side, certainly. We are talking about architecture, we are talking about this, we are talking about that. That is to say an opening horizon for everybody. The Arabs and 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 the, the Orient in general, let us call it, that is, the East that is, was a bit slow in responding to the Arabian Nights for very many reasons, including the feeling that this is not exactly up to the standard of the classical tradition. So they put it aside. They put it aside. When they noticed, though, early on, that that uh, that uh, that the West is very interested in these tales, and there were so many writings and so on, they began to show some interest, but the interest was a little bit limited to the frame tale. That is half of the frame tail, missing the two queens, and and, and so on. So uh, th that was also a point which is certainly very important. And later on, they began to kind of catch up and they tried to see exactly what is there in this neglected uh, tradition, which is very important. Is there something which is, I mean, we know Salman Rushdie did something, uh, the other did something, and, and, and so on. But I don't think that actually, with the exception of what Najib Mahfouz did, and a little of what Taha Hussein uh, and Tawfiq al-Hakim did about the second half of the frame tale, there was very little which which is achievable. And 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 uh, for instance, take Jabra Ibrahim Jabra, a great scholar certainly, and novelist, and the translator of Shakespeare, and and so on. And Jamra in his articles in the 1950s, for instance, was very reluctant to admit the Arabian Nights, that is, in his understanding of how fiction and narrative works, because he was, that is, the Cambridge Levis tradition at that time. He thought of something serious somewhere else, some, not exactly here. And, 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 and as such, he was like very many others, searching for something else, and the application of the uh, 
of what was current at that time and understanding what is narrative. So you can say that Jabra was not alone because narratologists until this very moment, with the exception of three lines by Pierce, for instance, they were reluctant to understand that you cannot write narrative only, uh, uh, only in relation to 19th century novel tradition in Europe. This is not narrative. This is part of the bourgeois epic. It is part of a story. It is not the whole story. And the whole story is, has very many ups and downs, fluctuations and, and variations. And it is important for that purpose. And so, so you can say that what we did, what I did in this book, in the new book that is, is to explore these venues and to open up the theory even of narratology in order for our colleagues, the narratologists, who are still preoccupied and occupied with what was in the 19th century, uh, I mean Europe, uh, uh, they should read. They should read and they should understand better. I mean, it is time with that upheaval with Chapin and the Academy of 1968, May, that is 1968, they should understand that, that, that your students are not going to accept this nonsense anymore. That you need really to go a little bit further and take a step further and take the challenge and go there. So the book is asking them and urging them to go into that direction. It is not addressed only to the common reader or to the student. But it is also to scholars and narratologists who think very highly of their profession and, and with the assumption that this is the core of comparative literature and understanding how to converse in literary issues. That is one side. The other side, though, is what I called in one chapter decolonizing the Arabian Nights, meaning what? And very many questions. First of all, sir, part of it is narratology. Part of it is narratology, as I mentioned in a minute, a minute ago. But at the same time, we need to go into the translations because some of these translations are heavily annotated. And let us take two examples. Edward William Lane, very heavily annotated a translation, biblical style, which he thought this is the oriental style. And 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 uh, Richard Burton, which his love for porno- uh, pornography and anthropological research and so on, he, he provided us with a lot of that. Important certainly for people who are searching for that. But again, the Arabian Nights is heavily burdened with all these annotations, and we need to free the Arabian Nights from all these and read it as a literary text, like any text. I mean, just read it as a text and approach it differently and read it with that understanding. No preassumptions, no platitudes, no stereotypes. Free your mind and go. And with that kind of going, certainly, we you, you can see that here is the Arabian Nights, whether it is we that as a text we are talking about and and you certainly a question will be raised. I mean, what, what text you are talking about? Now we have incomplete certainly translation by Galan. But as I argued, and I think Borges was not far from that. The Galan at least is the most decent in the sense that he was as close as possible to his manuscript, to his manuscript. Certainly, whatever he did if he made any changes here and there. It is what he called delicacy of, of his society, which he was addressing at that time. And so that was one side of the thing. So, so just a quick question. Did he also use an Arabic manuscript or to translate the book? The, the, uh, because later on, we know that the late Mohsin Mahdi translated the manuscript itself, which Galand worked on. So... He took that manuscript and translated it, you know, and edited it. Actually, the first version, 1984, was an edited Arabic text. So that was the manuscript which 
Galand read and translated in French. Uh, uh, was there a continuation that belongs to the early centuries? We don't have very many. We have indications, but we don't. We don't have. Whatever that came later that is induced by Lane and a few others was kind of a later flowering of something. By mid-18th century, there were manuscripts, but uh, written or collected, especially when the philologists, Arab philologists, noticed and uh, that there is an interest in that, they began to write down what they know. And, and that is what Edward William Lane collected. So there is, he used Galland's manuscript, but he used what was made available by the end of the 18th century, early 19th century, and so on. So that is what we have. What, we, what, uh, what I'm asking for, certainly, is more or less how to make a text out of these and at the same time to approach it as a text without all this kind of paraphernalia. That is the suggestion that it is a, sh- a social do- document, it is an archival material, it is this, that. No, go to it as it is, as if you read something free. Uh, if this is possible, certainly, and the free the Arabian Nights, you are decolonizing in this sense. And that is very important. So if I look at the, at the, long, uh, at the picture itself and to try to see what we have, what we have, the writings which appeared, and you can tell from the bibliography and, uh, and the index, the writings about it, the adaptations, the appropriations, the abridgments, this, that, all these will tell you that we are not talking anymore about, about a book. We are talking about a consortium of knowledge. And this is why we need it in order to understand societies, movements of culture, and so on, and so on. And for that matter, I feel that this book is, is, uh, is an important, I mean, uh, addition to our understanding of larger topics. So it is not merely talking about the Arabian Nights and responses. It is a large uh, kind of uh, a, a large, a large. I said, I think I said in another book, the Medieval Islamic Republic of Letters, that is, how is it possible to bring all these together and and look at them, look at them in that kind of correspondence and negotiation between names, text, reflections, and so on, and see exactly what do they make, and do they, what do they make. If they make that kind of consortium, if they make that kind of platform, then we are talking about a larger than one construction. We are talking about a world literature that has been emerging from here and has been inviting everybody, whether you are living in Latin America, and Borges was not an exception because very many are there, or we are talking about, about Spain, or we are talking about this and that you will be surprised to see that here is a book that has been inviting and is still inviting so many responses and so many comments, and there is no end to that. And there is, I think, I think uh, Burton, when he mentioned that, that it is impossible to end because to end the Arabian Nights means that people are dead because no end. And, uh, and he said that there was a myth saying that Anybody who thinks that it is done, uh, the Arabian Nights, will be facing death like Shahrazad. Who knows? That either or, either you continue talking or you die. And we are continuing talking, uh, luckily enough, both you, Murtaza, and myself. And so that is, I think, uh, for the questions. And thank you. Mm. Mm, thank you. Uh, do you mind if I ask you a few more questions? It's more like uh, you, are, you, you actually more or less talked about many of the things that I wanted to ask you, which is great. Uh, one thing I'm, uh, and you're absolutely right, it's fascinating, it's simply amazing how the Arabian Nights has been used, reused, reconstructed, reflected in paintings, architecture, movies, even in commercials. 
one thing I, uh, one, one really, really strange commercial I came across was from Soviet Union, 1960s or 70s, I guess. There was this Oriental king and the Shahzad, but Shahzad was offering him Pepsi. It was a commercial for Pepsi, but it was the Oriental element. It was in Soviet Union and it was an American product. But anyway, it was, uh, it's, it's just to show how it's been used. Now, one question I have is that you're absolutely right that this has been replicated. It has been colonized in the sense that it has been read as a consortium of knowledge. But what do Arabs write? And I don't know anything about Arab literature myself, Arabic literature. So that's why I'm asking. How was it reused? Or did you see similar trends in the Orient, in the Arab world as well, in terms of uh, commodifying or or using Arabian Nights in their literature and culture? They, they have, I mean, I notice if you visit hotels and whatever, you find very many paintings which are orientalized versions, certainly under the impact of the French school of painting, usually with these kind of oriental women and so on. I mean, the exception. And uh, so, so uh, there, there is such a thing. But I think it is, I was attending a conference in Germany, Freie Berlin, and uh, a long time ago. And one guy who was speaking about his own paintings, which he sells to hotels and whatever, as part of, uh, part of uh, you can say, tourism uh, industry. And, and I remember a sharp young girl from Egypt responded to that, rejecting that as very orientalized kind of vision, which belongs to an old school of reading and, and so on. So you can tell that there are responses and there is awareness of that. But uh, was that uh, or can we think of that as systematic knowledge? No, not yet. I think it is a little bit random. I don't think if it is well read uh, myself, I don't think so. And I think this is why the book is in translation right now. And I think, I think uh, the, the translator is done with the translation by the editor. The other one uh, is doing the job right now to go over the material and so on. And and I wish that it will have a large audience. So we'll wait and see exactly how it goes. But, uh, but definitely um, the book, as you know, I mean, a second print paperback appeared in less than nine months, which is, uh, which is quite good. It means that it's selling well, you know, and popular enough. So we'll wait and see exactly how this works. Are these trends as they are noticeable? You see, culture in certain countries is a little bit available more right now with with the lack of with the lack of good bibliographies. Whether we are we are talking about online or written or compiled or so on, we don't have a lot to uh, allow us to uh, make some generalizations or estimates for uh, that matter. Uh, I remember just uh, Richard Altick, who was my external examiner when I was at Dalhousie University at that time. He was teaching at Ohio State University at that time. And in his report, certainly, he noticed that the first book we are talking about, 1981, I mean, and he examined me in 1978. And as external examiner, he said that this book should lead to very many other books. And because it falls within the understanding of major trends in what we call European and Western literatures and so on. So because to them, this is the most clear side of the thing, you know. While when we are talking about about Asia, for instance, and Africa, until now, we cannot generalize. We can speak about certain things. For instance, the identity crisis, uh, you know, uh, the, the uh, decolonizing strategies, writing, and so These 
can be because you can you can talk you can talk and you can have three four five examples now we are talking about this consortium which is collected and possible for us to see because it is spread through very many areas and luckily we have very many bibliographies. I mean, we can't claim that we have all the bibliographies, but we have as much as to enable us to to read. And that is part of the legacy of colonialism itself. Colonialism certainly made very good use of, of uh, learning processes and the institutes for useful or societies for so-called useful knowledge uh, happen to play a role. The empire needs these roles in order to understand societies and cultures and so on, even within the limits which they, uh, they have at that time. And one final question. I'm originally from Iran, as you might have guessed from my name. And whenever I talk to my friends about this book, some of them, not all, the moment I say Arabian Nights, they get riled up. This is the Persian stories. And you work in Colombia. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. you've come across that. Yeah, yeah I came across the that. They come what with the name Shahzad, which is a Persian name. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been lucky to be able to read the book in Farsi, but I don't really know... What is the origin of that? Where, 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 what language was it originally written in? Was it a mixture? There, there is a chapter. There is a chapter mm. which I wrote about the archaeology of the Arabian night. And in that, certainly, I went back to the stories which we have. There was uh, certainly Hazar Afsane. So Hazar Afsane, there was such a book. Whether it was fabricated, real, we don't know. But Ibn Nadim, the bibliophile, said in the 10th century that he saw such a book. He saw such a book. Now, was Ibn al-Muqaffa really the one who wrote that book, claimed it to translate it, or what? We don't know. It is quite possible that Ibn al-Muqaffa or somebody else, because we have a few of a Persian origin, who were working in the Abbasid Empire at that time and in Baghdad at, at the time, and they fabricated very many stories and they claimed an origin for them because they wrote them themselves. And they know that these could go very and become very popular if they were mentioned as translations. Otherwise, they would be dismissed as, as fables and nobody will read them. So they need to do that trick. Actually, Mas'udi, who was early uh, 10th century scholar who came across the same issue, he said during the Umayyad period, very many storytellers began to fabricate stories as translations because they know that the Umayyad caliphs love translations. They love the tra- If you speak in Arabic, in comparison, certainly to the good poetry, excellent poetry you have, and and so on, they'll dismiss anything else. They'll dismiss. But if you say, well, this is of Indic Persian origin, they listen to it. They listen to it. They don't think of it as a fable. No, they are ready to listen. It is entertaining. It is also. So we have that problem. Why do we see, say that? Because at the Oriental Institute in Chicago, there is a kind of a, a, a partial manuscript that tells us that there were there was a collection of stories which was written on paper, and and this is the oldest paper edition, which uh, after the Quran. Meaning, and and it said that these are selections from the thousand nights not thousand and one, thousand nights. And it has everything, Bedouin, urban, uh, Indic, Persian, Greek, and collections, and so on. So so we have that indications, as I told you. With that suspicion, we cannot be definite about anything. The names don't mean anything, certainly. They don't mean. And the history itself... Uh, because if you read the first two lines, and the the historian, uh, second-hand historian, that is, will tell you it was mentioned 
and only God knows, so and so on. So is this is this a Sasani? A Sasani? No. I mean, you can tell that it is fabricated, and the guy would like to sell that, and this is why the mention of Allah in the second line. So, and only God knows, uh, and and so on. So we I deconstructed that in the archaeology of the Arabian Nights in order to see because. The myth of origin is funny and and it is no longer valid. It is a stupid story of origin, you see. These cultures are mixed and they take from each other and they argue and so on. But with the, with the nationalist kind of tendency uh, and identity crisis, everybody would like to claim anything, you know. It is known there was an Islamic Republic of Letters at that time. And that Islamic Republic of Letters, it has that correspondence, it has that. I mean, in somebody in Samarqad, Sharif al-Jurjani, for instance, under Timur Ling, is there, corresponding with Egypt, or he is with Egypt and corresponding with somebody in Baghdad, or in Cairo, or in Aleppo, or in Damascus, or and so on. So we, you find that kind of ongoing conversation which disputes any talk about identity as such. We are talking about these huge uh, cultural movements, and which are very important. But as I told you, I mean, the problem with these nationalist attitudes, are they are Arab version in the, right now in India. You find the same thing and so on. So you find these issues which are problematic as they are stupid. Mm-hmm. Absolutely right. Yeah, absolutely right. And unfortunately, it's not only in the area of literature, but also history. I'm sure you're all familiar with that um, more than anybody else. They claim, they claim history, culture, science everything this is a persian either genius no he was an arab genius the funny thing is that with rumi he was born in today's in where today is afghanistan he wrote in persian he's buried in in turkey so you're absolutely right. i love that idea of the republic of letters yeah uh professor musan al musavi thank you very very much for taking the time to talk with us on new books network absolutely enjoyed your book and i really recommend this book i strongly recommend this book to our listeners the arabian nights in contemporary world cultures global commodification translation and the cultural and the culture industry published by cambridge university press thank you very much thank you thank you Murtaza. thank you so much <laughs>